We're currently operating six different market centers with six offices, and we've centralized a lot of services. And then we have a, the local teams that do the leasing, managing, and maintaining. Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season two on sales. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I am talking with Rob Coldwell, the president of Rentwell, formerly your local leasing company, which operates out of Broomall, Pennsylvania. Rentwell is a sizable player in the number of markets that they operate in, and their portfolio runs the gamut from SFH to condos to small and medium-sized apartment communities. I've known Rob for some time. He's a gentleman and a hustler, which I assure you is a very good thing. And today we're going to be talking with him about growing your portfolio from scratch into eventually what is now a scalable organization. Welcome to the show, Rob. Oh, Jordan, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I hope to give a lot of value to your listeners. Well, it was a pleasure to have you on. I have known you for a while. I've seen the growth of your organization. Give me the lead up up to running a property management company. What, what was your background prior to getting into property management? Yeah, immediately following property management, I was the director of franchising for a drive through grocery store concept called Swiss Farms. And uh, if you're familiar with a drive through grocery store, there are not many around in the country, but you would uh, pull up, you get your a gallon of milk, a loaf of bread, a dozen eggs. And I was enamored with that company for quite some time. And I spent a good part of my 20s working for that company, working with them. And I went from being the milkman at the Swiss farm stores to then being the rental man, partnering with a gentleman in the business formerly called Your Loading Company, which was a tenant placement firm in my hometown of Delaware County, Pennsylvania. So, Rob, one of the first questions I have about Rentwell is, can you just give me some context on the company? Markets, unit count, staff, how would you describe the company today? Sure. We use a hub-and-spoke model where we've licensed the brand to uh, some really talented business partners around the country. We're currently uh, operating six different market centers. We are in uh, the Tampa Bay area, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Maryland, and Wilmington, Delaware with six offices. And we've centralized a lot of services. And then we have a, the local teams that do the leasing, managing, and maintaining. Got it. Licensing the brand. That's interesting. Uh, how exactly does that arrangement work? We started in, in late 2009 as a tenant placement firm. And then in 2010, we took on our first property management clients. 
and I came on board in, in 2012 full-time, having left the uh, drive through grocery store. So what we, what we did for a number of years was just operate our single office. We got up to around seven to 800 doors, and our then broker of record was moving to Pittsburgh, which is on the other side of Pennsylvania, and he wanted to bring the brand with him. So we leveraged my, my background in franchising, and we had our board of advisors, and we figured out how to do our shared services, where basically a royalty of sorts and a service fee is paid uh, to the corporate hub, if you will. And from that, we were able to launch in Pittsburgh, and we had a very successful launch. We started with a, a small business that we had purchased and quickly grew that business. So they were profitable. Now we're to the point running around 2,000 units across these market centers, and uh, our hub and license company is also profitable. So bit of a bootstrap story where we, where we have our shared services, and then we execute in the field, and it gives us the best of both worlds, we feel, because we can be nimble and local to our different geographies and those markets, but we have that larger company infrastructure and compliance, accounting, soon-to-be call center that allows our local offices to operate uh, more profitably and focus more on the end user and those residents and not kind of get worried or spend a lot of time about the back end, all the accounting and everything that goes along with uh, running a property management firm. So is this essentially a franchise or would you delineate this from being a franchise? Yeah, I would delineate it from a franchise because my my partners and I at at our corporate hub are also owners and we have invested into the local markets. I see. Okay, but that said, it's possible that somebody could want to open up in – Dallas, Texas, and you could not invest, correct, in which case it would just be a pure franchise. Is that investment inherent in the model or is that a more circumstantial thing and you could envision pivoting off of that to a more traditional franchise model is what I'm asking? Right. You could totally pivot this, our, our business model, into a franchise model. It would be, it would be, it would be relatively easy to do. Okay, great. So you said around 2,000 doors across all the marketplaces? That's correct. Yes, some have been opened up for just just about a year. So we went from um, two offices, um, a third office, and then we opened up three in one year. And um, if you read the book, The Rockefeller Habits, it talks about going how how different your business is from going from that one to six mark. So that's where we are right now. We we like our size of where we are. We're privately held. We have no debts and. Our goal is just to operate as best we can in each of the markets where we are. So, Rob, what was the size of the company when you came on board? How many doors were they at, roughly? Uh, January of 2010, we had zero units under management. We had uh, okay, great. So you really took it. All, you really took it from day one. Yes. 
Fantastic. So let's then talk about that perspective that you have as an owner and as a founder and most importantly as an entrepreneur from transitioning the business through multiple phases because of course we all know the phrase that what got you here won't get you to the next place of where you want to go. So you're kind of as an entrepreneur reinventing yourself as the organization scales Early on, what did you do to get to that first inflection point? And I guess I'll ask you, what did you consider to be the first inflection point in terms of the size of the company? Was it was that 100 doors? Was it 200 doors? What was it for you? Well, it's a it, it, great question. So there's actually a book that I'm looking at written by Marshall Goldsmith called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. It's a private bestseller, so uh, that is that is absolutely the case for for you know applicable to to many things. So the first was that critical one hundred units, and then after that it was the four hundred unit mark. Okay, and for when it relates to sales, a big challenge that we had early on was not. Really knowing who our client, who our ideal client was. So we would take on almost anything and everything. Like I would joke, if we got in four leads that week or that day or that month, we wanted five clients. So, uh, not very selective. Um, I'll hit pretty much every challenge that I could imagine early on. That critical first hundred units was a big deal because that's when you can start to in our case because we bootstrapped it this is this was uh you know funded my mastercard and visa early on <laughs> love it yeah absolutely so it was you know recruiting some friends and family that would do some part-time work and then also you know growing through the different vendors that are needed to operate your business it's almost like an engine where the rpms start getting higher and higher and then you you, you do these stress tests on it so I wouldn't want to go back to those early days. I, I don't know how much money you'd have to pay me to, 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 to go through that. <laughs> no, knowing what I know now, uh, certainly would navigate it a little differently, right? But uh, they, were, they were some early challenges, um, but I'm, I'm still enamored with the industry. I like the industry, and I wouldn't want to discourage any of your listeners who are just getting started to, uh, to go after an industry as, as property management. No, it's a fantastic industry to be in. And of course, nobody wants to go back. But I think the real irony is that in reality, if we all knew what it was going to be like when we started, many of us would not have gotten started in the first place because it's always harder. It always takes longer. It's always more grueling. That first hundred doors, were you the one doing the selling? I was not doing the selling. I had a business partner doing the selling and we had been trying to hire agents to do the selling. And we put them through Sandler sales training in their uh, their president's club. That's fantastic. So you're putting property managers. When you say agents, you're talking about leasing agents. What role were you putting through that training? Right. So we were portfolio-based back then. And the idea was that each of these agents could could have up to about 100 doors and make a, make a healthy living from that. We started out by cold calling for rent signs. Right where we'd go through Craigslist, we'd scrub lists. We would we we had this whole Microsoft Access database going, and we would just dial for dollars, as you know they they call it. And that's how we got started. We would just go to the vacancies. Right, we were called your local leasing company. That's how it got started. So a lot of cold calling, 
and we gave them we gave them some of that some of that training to overcome objections to reverse questions things of that nature because we were starting cold and uh, it was it was I don't want to say it's life or death but you know we had to we had to get the business going so the fact you actually put folks through sales training is kind of unique very 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 few of my clients actually or willing to pony up for training, particularly early on, right? That's even uh, a bigger deal that you invest, invest in that from day one. Had you had any training from Sandler? Where did the belief in the value come from? Sure. Getting back to the bootstrap. So I'm a big fan of bartering for services. So I, I had met a Sandler coach and I had one who was just getting his business started and I had one through a chamber of commerce a free program for him and we it blossomed into a really nice relationship for a number of years and then I I was able to just negotiate some things for once I learned uh, the program and I helped him uh, to grow his business and get hit, give him referrals as I made the transition to go full time into the property management space that's how we were able to structure to bring some more uh, agents uh, through the through the program so you're innovative. You have that bootstrapper mindset. Necessity is the mother of invention. Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of actually training a property manager in sales, though. That doesn't sound like an appetizing prospect to me in the sense that the profile of what makes a great property manager really is pretty different than the profile of what makes a great salesperson. So did you hire based on folks that had flex capacity in terms of, of temperament? How did that go? That's the challenge. I didn't know that at the time. So because I didn't come from the property management space and I really didn't have a lot of direct experience with property management except for a small portfolio that I, uh, that I was growing from, from graduating from, from college, I didn't really understand. I mean, I had a, an intuitive sense of what would be needed for the property management, but I didn't realize how hard it was and, and the, the, the nuances and the personality types, right? Because we would study the DISC profile, the DISC. So it was. Uh, there were some early challenges where, yes, we, the the better the salesperson, almost the worse the property manager would be. So at one time we had like seven salespeople. We were growing, 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 but we didn't have the infrastructure to support it on the back end. And that was that was probably the mo- one of the most critical junctures where we had to then pivot the company, hire full time property managers, change around different compensation models, and then make the transition from X Y Z salesperson is now no longer your property manager. At that time, we called them portfolio advisors, right? And then we we would we would make that baton pass. And that was one where we where we retracted a little bit, but it was better because we, you know, literally the wheels were going to fly off the bus had we kept growing. In our space, that was Philadelphia market. It's still there's still bandwidth for more property management companies, and we're, we're projecting some pretty significant growth over the next few years in our Philadelphia market. It was the only way we knew how to get started, but it certainly wasn't the best way to run a management company for the client, for the resident, the vendors, the community, etc. So today, is the company managed in more of a departmental type fashion? We are. Where were you size-wise when you made that transition to kind of moving towards distinct roles? We went from about 750 doors, and then we went down to about 500 doors, and we, we restructured. 
Walk me through that kind of critical phase. What what were the moving parts and what was that play there? How did you work through it? I'm going to need to get some Tylenol if I have to get back <laughs> those files. But, I mean, that's literally what we did was we hired property managers and then I just watched my cash position to not – to not do the wrong thing for the sales agents, but getting the business was easy. We also did um, E-Myth coaching. So E-Myth taught us of lead generation, lead conversion, and then client fulfillment. And when we looked at this, we had a client fulfillment problem, not so much getting leads and then converting them. Because the other challenge that we had was, was once the salesperson was no longer responsible for fulfilling the promise, but they were incentivized to grow, uh, that was a challenging time as well where, where they were not in alignment. So now our model is much different where there are fewer salespeople in each of the markets. Generally, the salesperson is the owner, our business partner, And they are responsible also for the client fulfillment side because they both bring on the business and they're responsible for the metrics of the company. And the the metrics that we're tracking is is not just what the EBITDA is or the growth rate is for a market center. Those metrics are what's our rent collection, days on market, delinquency factors. We – are on a software platform where, where we can track over time how much money are we sending our clients. And that's been a game changer over the last few years is to align our profit and loss of, of a rent well market with the profit and loss for that landlord, that investor. And if when the sales wasn't in alignment with that, we would take on a lot of business that, we, that was not a right fit for rent well. And then those were the clients that would cost us the most money, take the most time, want to do their own maintenance but not be able to execute well, want to talk down to the staff uh, because they were frustrated with their portfolio. So what's been beautiful is is launching new markets, we were able to get them started with that training right off the bat. And then by from living through all the pain, you knew what to do and what not to do and you could speak to it intelligently and then hopefully convince the partner, you know, this is why that client may not be the best fit at this point in time. So when you say that it was easy to grow early on, the lead generation function came naturally to your organization. Would you say that that is still the case now? Has it been different in different markets? And if so, what did you do to actually manage that aspect of the business? Each of these markets is, is, is growing a little differently and they're growing with different types of clients. So what – The other thing that we learned was because we specialize in both the scattered site single family as well as the small multifamily, small enough where you wouldn't need a full-time on-site manager, we, we have to be careful of what clients we're taking on based upon also the staffing that we have in a market. But absolutely, how we are finding this business is different for different markets where sometimes the paid leads um, we just we wouldn't be converting them. They wouldn't make sense. Other times, the direct mail would do gangbusters in some areas, but then we'd hear crickets in others. And that's something that is a big initiative for us for this upcoming first quarter of 2018 is more marketing, right? Because we have our operations and they're very solid, right, across all of our market centers. 
And now it's time to, I'm going to say, grow again. Time to step on the gas. It's it's time to step on the gas. Yep. And now's the, the time to start planning, by the way, right? Of course, not January 1st. You're kind of too late when you're trying to execute on a, a year-long strategy. So good on you for, for doing that same planning cycle. We're in that right now ourselves, going from the macro to the micro. Now you're in a position where you have salespeople in multiple markets can you walk me through organizationally how you both recruit, onboard, and manage boots on the ground talent that's 3,000 miles away? I have a business partner who is my, my COO. He started with the company pretty early on and has gone through, gone through the ranks. So what we do is we have weekly calls set up with each of our business partners and our, our original office and where our, we call our hub, that is located right next to uh, our largest market center, which is our Philadelphia market. So we are right there in the businesses. If you re- wanted to relate it to a franchise, it's a, it's a bit like having your corporate uh, region of McDonald's above a store. We have weekly calls. And the new program that we're rolling out is our new HR program where we take the 2008 plan, and that's what we're working on, our 2008 plan. We're not doing five years out and four years out, and this is where we're going to be and all these units and all that stuff. We are – we do a rolling four quarters. We're – Going out for four quarters, and then we we continually update our plans. So we're continually looking a year out. Lots of communication back and forth, and then the software is is uh, is centralized. So we have what are called market center liaisons that are working with that market on a one on one basis throughout the throughout the day because they're doing a lot of the back end functions. So let's say Baltimore is signing up thirty new units. Our corporate hub is helping them do all of that onboarding, going through our compliance checks, and making sure that the best information is getting into the system. My uh, partner is working with the conversations with our business partner to make sure that we have the right staffing coming through. Okay, And for that, what we've used is the Keller Williams. Uh, it used to be called Recruit Select. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. I've audited that class. Love it. Yep. So we've, you know, and that's great. Like that's a resource, right? So uh, I'm pretty sure everybody can go. That's the Keller Williams culture, right? Where you can pay and as you said, audit the class. So that's all about recruiting and leveraging your allied resources to find the talent. And what's, what's great now is that now we know what those different personality profiles are for the mix. And there are really five or six roles that need to be filled in each of the markets based upon how many units we have in that market. What about Recruit Select do you actually practice? Because I was blown away. I mean, it's it's a pretty hardcore process in terms of the level of scrutiny that they expect to be applied to actually use as that mesh or, the, or that filter when bringing on a new hire. I would love to say that we use the whole program. We use as much of that as we possibly can. We, we've, I've made some bad hires over the years. I didn't have a clear mission and vision and values uh, early on, and now we have our values posted in each of our offices, You know, number one being integrity, 
Because how can you be a property management company and not have some with, with high in, someone with high integrity in your firm? It just doesn't work, and it's gonna it's gonna be very very costly. So we have whole a whole program where we train like on our version of Recruit Select, where we have getting back to that E myth term of of position agreements and what the desired result is for the property manager. Because in each of the offices, there's a local property manager, there's a local field manager, and then there's that listing showing agent. Then when they get to a certain size, they have an office manager. So we use as much of that as we can with with a lot of the face-to-face. We start with a group interview, right? So we bring everyone in, and right there, that's going to weed out some people because they didn't know it was going to be a group interview. And then after that, we ask them to follow up with us so that weeds out some more people. And then we do a field day. Whatever it, whatever that field position is going to be, they're going to spend almost a full day with us. So uh, I'm in the process of, of really learning the maintenance side of our company, right? I think I've underestimated how critical maintenance is. And I am physically there on rehabs and and I'm spending a lot of time in the maintenance maintenance side of our of our business. So when we're looking to hire a new field manager is going to be overseeing these projects, they would go through the group interview, follow up with us, meet with some of the team members, and then literally it's going to be like, great, let's get in the pickup truck and let and let's let's walk a property. And let's walk a few properties and let's go into some different neighborhoods. Let's see what they're comfortable with. Same thing if we're going to hire, uh, let's say, an executive assistant. Like, here's a bunch of paperwork. I'll be back in an hour. Can you organize it for me, and we'll see and, and we'll see how you do. Some people will walk out, and other people's will have it all organized and say, you know, the next thing you need to do is hire me. <laughs> you know, the, the proverbial hire slow and fire fast, getting back to that critical juncture, Hindsight is assuming you're making enough to feed your family and you're you are surviving. My advice to anyone getting a small business going is don't sacrifice a a hire just for more growth or just because it's easy, Um, especially early on, because then that person becomes part of your culture. Whether you want it or not, never hire somebody just from that first interview, because anybody can fake it in that one interview. You want to see some proof of concept. Absolutely. So let's talk about how the culture of the organization permeates through. If let's say you're having an annual meeting and every employee from every market center came together, was having a Christmas party. One of your salespeople in a disparate market down in Florida comes up to you and is talking shop and they just ask you, hey, you know, Rob, I'm, I'm struggling. I've been doing the job for three months. And I'm struggling with the closing function. I'm, I'm having in some initial conversations, but I'm just struggling to get people to actually sign the contract. What is the general advice that you have for boots on the ground talent to effectively close new business the rent well way? Mm. Well, the first thing that came to mind when you said that was was head trash. What is stopping them from closing some and I would go back to the Sandler sales training and a couple key techniques like are they selling past the sell were they working with a qualified candidate did they know what the quote unquote pain was how motivated was that person 
And then also, what's our competitive market analysis? Because we're, we're not going to be the, the least expensive property manager out there. In terms of our property management rates per se, we don't run a, a like a flat rate model. We do charge a percentage of rents and leasing fees and, and maintenance. And so we want to work with that client to have them understand what the blended property management fee is going to be. The investment in the services, what is that blended going to be? That's where it would start. A conversation, and then we would, with this new, we're using a, a software, I believe it's called Bamboo HR, where we can see how that person has been going through their progression because it does take about 90 days for a new salesperson to get up to speed with what we're doing. And that's like the critical juncture where we've invested in them. And then also, I take it very seriously because that person has invested in themselves. And they've made a, either a career move or they're getting into the space and they put a lot into it. So they're, they're not hitting their goals and then we both have a problem. What's nice about having these six markets is we now have enough people on the team doing similar roles where we can mastermind with each other. So we, we literally just wrapped up about a month ago the, the Rentwell Summit. That was for everyone in the company could come. So our, our team in Florida, uh, there's, uh, there's six of them right now. They, the, the whole team came up. In January, we'll have our owners meeting where all of the owners will come together and we will, we'll mastermind around topics and around our planning and, and what are the big rocks for 2018. But in between those, what we've set up is calls where they're not required calls, but we want to know who's showing up to those and who's participating in sales-related calls, property management calls, maintenance calls, because that the, the saying, you know, experience is what you get just after you needed it. That wisdom that comes with these mis- mistakes, and that's what has always gotten me through the hardest times is to say, you know what, I'm glad – we made that mistake. Like if for those that listen to Jocko Wilnick, right? Like when something's going wrong and you say good, well, because sometimes that's all I've had to get through some challenging times, right? And I want to then instill that like, good, you missed the sale. Good. More time to get better. Where did we lose it at? And then with the call recording software, we can then, um, we have a good database of this in our intranet there are some common objections that you get that you just need to know how to overcome those objections. Why do you keep the late fees? I want to keep my late fees. You need to know how to answer that. If you keep the late fees, some management companies, they share, they, they, they split them or they, or they, uh, uh, they give them all to the, the client. Like the first thing we do a lot of trade shows. So our typical client owns five to 15 rentals. And we find a lot of them at real estate clubs. And a lot of them, the first question is, well, what do you charge? What's your percentage? Like, well, how do you answer that? Because it's different if they have $600 one-bedroom subsidized housing or if they have uh, um, you know, a garden-style community with a three-bedroom rent for $1,500 a month or higher. That rate, our rate matrix is, is going to be different for that. Well, so that's probably the most common 
question. No doubt that is the most common question. And when people gripe about it, my first response is don't blame the consumer. A, never get mad at the money, just general life principle. B, if the consumer doesn't know any better than to lead with that question, it's your job to get them to a point that they've actually prioritized other factors. That said, Rob, how would you handle the pricing and the fee question in light of the complexity that you just explained? Some of it's going to depend on what kind of mood I'm in and how many times I've been asked it that day. <laughs> but uh, what I, you know, sometimes I love to say, oh, oh, we're 50%. <laughs> right? Pattern interrupt. Let me sure. see if they laugh. <laughs> if they don't uh, laugh, honestly, I'm not quite sure I really want to be working with them. <laughs> so I it. start there. I say, no, in all seriousness, um, I'd be happy to answer that. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Maybe we should spend a little time. Let me understand what's going on with your portfolio. And then we use a, uh, a pricing matrix, which is going to help us understand the blended investment into the property management for your space. Do you do your own maintenance? Do you do your own tenant placement? Like I'm qualifying that person. So I'm going to not answer the question. That's one approach. Another approach is just to give them a range right out of the gate, just to de-escalate it. You know, we may, uh, fees vary anywhere from X percent to X percent. Can I ask you some more questions to give you an, an exact answer? That's exactly yeah, right. Yep, we yep, we're five to ten percent on property management. That's going to vary on what on, on depending on what you have, and you're absolutely right. Yep. So you mentioned that you're not a low cost operator. You guys are not flat fee, correct? We're not a flat fee. No, we tried it. I spent, and that was a that was a good way to, for us to grow. Uh, you know, seventy nine dollars a month condo. Uh, here, here it was, and it and for us, it didn't work for us. That that model we found uh, didn't work for us. Number one, we didn't have to be, so we were giving up margin. And number two, we actually missed some business because they thought it was too inexpensive. So you mentioned earlier that that is not the case, and obviously, if people are paying more, the the more you charge, the more the burden goes up for you both to qualify, but also to overcome objections. And the more the investment goes up, the more the perceived risk is. I've always said property management fees can be sliced a million different ways. You can effectively charge people 1% and have enough fees on the backside to take it back to the equivalent of 10%. Now, I'm not saying that's a good idea, but the point is that initial number that people want to hear, the 7, 8, 9, 10% is pretty deceptive in the sense that for the consumer, they need the overall blended cost. I love that you're calling that out. That's the service-oriented, consultative thing to do is to set the buying criteria. Hey, Mr. Consumer, you probably haven't done this before, but I have. And I want to give you some valuable insight that you can use to grade my company, but as well as to judge any other. That's what that perspective of the blended pricing does. But if if the net number is higher, which you know could be totally justified based on higher quality services, the perception of the risk goes up. How do you handle overall risk reversal and the de-escalation of perceived risk that comes from charging more? Well, I like to say, I mean, in our, in our agreements, they can cancel at any time. They can talk to any of our other clients that have like-kinded rental properties in their area and speak with our other, other clients when it gets to that point in time. Because we also are very competitively priced. 
right? And we know what we charge uh, based upon what service they need. And the name Rentwell with the tag lease manage maintain, that was very strategic in how we have our offering. So we have the one fee for leasing, the one fee for uh, management, and then another fee for the maintenance. And then we're very honest and transparent about each of those components, especially when it, when it comes down to maintenance. It's a shame. I wish I would have one of my uh, you know top listing agents on the line with us, maybe a call for another day. But uh, you know that's we have lost some business or not uh, earned some business because there was a better firm out there. Quite frankly, you know Philadelphia, uh, which is most of my experience on the on the listing side. I mean, it's a big city. There's student housing, there's high end, there's low end, there's there's new construction, there's you know 120 year old townhomes, row houses. So sometimes in some markets we're going for a business that we probably shouldn't be going after because we're not the best firm for that, and I don't want to earn that business because it's not the right thing for that investor. It's not the right for that client, but our bread and butter in each of these markets, those are the ones that we want to go, and those are different in each of these markets. Baltimore is going to be different, have a different target than Clearwater. It's going to be a different target than Pittsburgh. We know where we're at, and we know where our competitors at, and we know how to earn that business. I'm curious how you think about the estimation and the valuing and the modeling of what a client is actually worth. Are you comfortable sharing some internal uh, stats? Let's say somebody is opening up a new office and they need to come up with a, with what a client is worth. And obviously part of that is how long a client is going to stick around for. What's your default operating assumption for a new operator in a new market as to how long the average client will stick around for? So we look at our clients as three different ways. We have those accidental landlords, and because we are rent well and we do not uh, compete with our realtor friends or our commercial brokers, we do get a lot of referrals for the accidental landlord, right? They couldn't sell their home or they'd lose too much money if they did. That client only stays with us two to three years right now on average. That's where we have higher turn rates because it's a good economy. And we, we, we track them a certain way. Then we have our, our small investors, but with their buying properties that are rental properties that are going to stay as rental properties. And we've had some of those clients from day one. Those clients we plan to have for that for as far as we would, we, we would go out would be five years on that in terms of planning for them. And we track this. We we have uh, uh, tags called PCR, a portfolio closure request. So when we went from the 750 to 500 doors, that was actually because we canceled a lot of, of accounts on our side because we took on the wrong business and the wrong client. So we track this in each of our markets, but I don't know that as well as I will uh, in about six months. Because that's a that's a big part of what we're doing right now, and that's actually what we've gotten from from uh, some of the webinars that you've done and my my business partner. We know what the industry standard is for that churn. The third investor type, which which is the larger multifamily, we've repositioned 
three or four of those this year where we've come to the end of a five-year cycle and they've sold those buildings. And we could have done everything right. They sell the building, but then that new client doesn't need us because they have it in-house or they already have a firm that they're comfortable working with or maybe they'll use us for three to six months for the transition, but then they'll go in-house with it. So what we look for is not so much what our churn rate is, but why, what was the reason behind it? And for that, we've been leveraging some virtual assistance where um, they are contacting every new client within six weeks of them getting signed up. How's it going? Have you been introduced to your property manager? You know, what was your leasing experience, your management experience, your maintenance experience, accounting, etc. Past times, we've also done a board of advisors. I'm big on board of advisors. So like clients that are on a board of advisory council to know like how how are we doing from your perspective? So I don't think that the churn rate is as important as it is the reason um, behind it. But on average, I believe we're around 18 percent that we know that we're going to if we're at a thousand doors, we need we need to be replacing uh, 200 a year. And and that's going to also vary by market. If we launch in a new market and we're seeing higher higher, you know, we've only been open a year, but we've but we've put some PCRs through. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, churn rate is a great one to focus on. Obviously, with any of these critical metrics, they need to be things that you can actually influence. As soon as either you can't or you feel like you can't, it becomes a vanity metric. It's not of any value. So that underlying why is how you get to that. Before we go on, I do want to mention our show sponsor, which is the PM Growth Summit, which is happening at the end of January in 2018. If you consider yourself a growth-minded property management entrepreneur focused on the E, like Rob Caldwell, then you're going to want to show up to this event because it's focused on sales and marketing. We touch on operations in so much as it is relevant to fuel growth. This event is focused on helping you build out that virtuous cycle in your business. Up your sales and marketing game. Feed that revenue into operations and have revenue from operations be able to go back into sales and marketing to grow and to expand. So if you're 100% focused on having a lifestyle business and going sideways, this may or may not be the event for you. You'll probably take away some stuff from it. But if you are focused on growth, if you're focused on developing yourself as a leader, this is the place to be. You can get $100 off your ticket by going to pmgrowsummit.com. Rob, I know that you are really focused on developing yourself as a leader, as a manager. I want to transition to that next. You've already mentioned in the course of this interview, Sandler, Emeth, uh, Vern Harnish's book. I know you facilitate a mastermind with people outside of the industry, but I know above all that you consider yourself an entrepreneur first, property you know, property man, obviously you're not a property manager, but the property management piece is second. Can you kind of talk me through how you think about personal development and, and where it fits in your overall big picture strategy? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's something thin near, near and dear to my heart. I am looking, I'm in my home office and I'm looking at these, uh, the skyscrapers that we have with the flags on them and they're once says rent well and then, and then next to it says personal development because I really believe that it's a foundation that as we grow, I mean, let's face it, property management companies, I understand that there's a lot of really neat software out there and that more and more can be done remotely and, and I get all that. But at the end of the day, it's still a people business. It's still a service business. 
we believe in pouring into our people as much as we can without crossing certain lines with them. So when we do our Rentwell Summit, we bring in different speakers, and, and the one that we did was the, the Delaware Valley Summit for Health, Wealth, and Personal Development, and then on the back side of that was uh, was our Rentwell Summit. So for me personally, a big part of you know what got me here won't get me there was recognizing that and growing into the leader um, that I am continuing to grow in today. And when I've had rough patches, it was because I have either gotten letting my ego get in the way. Right. Or I thought I was better than where I was. And the universe comes right back to show me like, hey, you're not, buddy. Like, don't you kind of don't rest on your laurels type deal. Focusing on personal development, focusing on the changing landscape, not only in your own mind, but also in the in the, the spaces where you operate. It's so important because without that. I don't know how to operate very well, quite frankly. Like I, I need a certain amount of learning and growth uh, in my life, and that's you know I studied a lot of the Anthony Robbins programs, right, with with the six human needs, and I'm a junkie for the conferences in a way, <laughs> right? Where <laughs> if I'm not going to them and I'm not learning these things, but I also have to strike the right balance because I, I can. Personally, I can I can almost sometimes do too much of it and then not do enough of it at all. So where I'm working on in my life is evening myself out and having more strategic planning and then also doing a better job to say this was what my plan was. How well are we doing on that plan? Uh, that's uh, that's at least for where I am and where I'm coming from. That's my own personal journey right now. And then also a challenge of being a small business is recruiting and keeping good talent. And we have some incredibly talented folks at Rentwell. Quite frankly, one thing that I could take worry and turn it into concern and then create a plan around it is I don't want to lose that talent. It needs to grow for them. Right. Oh, man. Well said. So if you're focused on working with other A players, they say B players recruit C players. You want to be hiring A players to build the organization. The pie has to get bigger or else these people just naturally cap out. That's a very natural progression. You don't want that to happen. When you mentioned earlier kind of those highs and lows, ego obviously is a big part of that. When you get too big big for your britches and life slaps you around, there's obviously on that growth track a natural balance between ego and aspiration. You, you accomplish something, the ego grows a little bit, but then your aspirations increase and you realize you ain't nothing again because the next level of where you want to go, you have to be in that student mindset again. So that's the natural balance between ego and aspiration. The challenge becomes when you start to, to go sideways, it's easy for that ego to start to become disproportionate. When we talk about personal development, I get a very mixed response from my audience. Some folks like yourself are all about it. Other folks, they kind of sort of see the value, uh, but they're just not quite sure if it's worth the investment of the time. One of the natural questions I have for you is, Rob, how do you make the time? Now, in my opinion, it's kind of a false dilemma in the sense that it's more about how, do, how did you decide to make that important in your life? Because if it's a priority, you'll naturally make the time. At the same time, do you have any 
regular disciplines and routines? Like, what is the, what does the average Rob Caldwell day look like, and does it incorporate any um, reading, meditation, personal development time, etc.? Sure, uh, I am a fan of Hal Elrod's principle of the miracle morning. I oh, love it. Yeah. So I had my miracle morning this morning. It was uh, up at uh, was it four forty five or five forty five? Usually it's one of those two times, depending on when my first meeting I have scheduled and when and what my was going on in the evening. So I have uh, Jordan. I have four children. The oldest is eight. The youngest is a year. Hmm. My what wife, a blessing. Man. My wife is a saint. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is a saint, and um, so it for me. My quiet time is in the morning. So that's when I'm focused on me. The first thing that I do when I get out of bed is I move. Some people call it the drunk monkey on their shoulder where like they're where they they almost don't want to get out of bed. They want to keep hitting snooze or they're very anxious. And I've had different periods of my life where I have had anxiety. And, um, you know, it's almost like the day is going to be too much. Let me just keep staying here. And then that's when it snowballs and gets worse because you're late, you're running around, you're not taking care of yourself. So I've had those periods where I wasn't taking care of myself, and I'm very grateful to be at a period where I've kind of gone back to my roots, and I have a practice that I call vision through purposeful action. And this is where I've I've taught it to about a dozen different business owners um, here locally in all in all walks of life where I you, you go through a meditation, you 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 work with a coach to say where do you want to be in the future? And and actually this is an E-Myth principle. They like first week of E-Myth, you write your eulogy. Right? So the eulogy is what people are gonna read for you when you pass away. So you write your eulogy, and that was a profound experience because it didn't say how much money I had in the bank, how many rentals I had, how many units I had. It was all about, like, Rob made a lasting enterprise. Like, he had fun. Like, he, he loved his family and, and his friends. You know, I miss the man. You know, I'm a better person because of him. So once a week, I take out that eulogy and I read it. And I have a binder with these different components. I'm in a mastermind group, and we've we've done something called a life happiness index, where you know it's great that your business is doing fantastic, but how about your relationships? Right? A conversation with my business partner this morning, TJ. What's the goal for you? Right? Well, and it wasn't it wasn't income. It was he's like, you know what? I want to have some more fun. He's like, and I really enjoy this, what we're doing with all this. I said, then you don't want fun because to us, business is fun. You want adventure. (laughs) Right, right. You know, what adventures do you want to have? And then we wrote down six things that he would like to do. So then that takes that. And that's why, you know, for me, I like to look at a year. So it's a great time for that 2018 for my own mastermind group called Every Man's Mastermind. That's what we did. So in November, we did a vision board. And now in December, we're going to take those that, those vision boards, and we're gonna we're going to create a, a one page summary of what 2008 is going to look for for us, and for everyone, it's going to be different. Um, when I find myself getting jealous, and I go on Facebook and I see that I'm home, but somebody else is doing this or doing that or anything, um, that's where I I. Have learned to go into, and I'm, I'm going to use the word faith 
to just like put the ego aside, be grateful for what I have because there's always somebody with a bigger business. There's always somebody who it, it seems like you want to have these different things, but we are our own person. And that's where for me, personal development reminds me of that. And from having gone through different rough patches, one thing that I would say is if you're if you're not into the personal development, maybe you could get into the exercise. And I think some people are into personal development, but they don't realize it's personal development. And they are taking care of themselves, and they are reading. But my day starts with a miracle morning, and then um, I am generally in the office. Um, it depends if I'm taking the kids to the bus stop or not. And then I work a, I work a full day. And then I come home and I want to eat dinner with my family. Um, a couple nights a week, I'm probably going to be at an, an event, right? Or I'm going to be uh, you know, having dinner with somebody. And then on the weekends, it's as much family time as, as I can get in. And then also some time for Rob because, you know, it's important. It's important to, to, to sharpen our own, you know, saws, they say. That's a great answer. I mean, obviously, that's like your own internal well is what you have to pour into other people. If I was going to distill down a lot of what you said, it was what I heard was driving clarity in your own perspective so that you're able to act out of a place of intentionality. I know in my own life, as an entrepreneur, as a hustler, somebody that's willing to, that really, that wants to win. Rob, I fundamentally want to win at life. And because of that, I am willing to throw myself into and at a project. Sometimes that's good, but the dark side of that is willingness to operate without clarity. And the longer that you do that, the longer I do that, the unhappier I get. I can be doing things that are value-added on a certain level, but if I'm operating without clarity and I'm just grinding it out, A, I know that the value I'm creating is suboptimal because I'm not coming from that place of intentionality. But I also know that the perspective and the purpose and the mission is so necessary for me just to feel good about what I'm doing and to really be happy and content. At some point, every entrepreneur has to graduate past the dollars, past the whatever the, the ego metric is. And for this to be a sustainable 10, 20, 30, 40-year career, there has to be something beyond that. That's what personal development represents to me. That's what it, that's what it gets at. It doesn't have to be moral, religious, philosophical – it's about self-actualization in my mind, and, and that's why it's meaningful to me. I appreciate you sharing on that. I do want to move on to the rapid-fire section of the interview. I'm just going to ask you some short questions, and I just want to get some guttural answers from you, Rob. We do this with every guest, and the first question is this. What advice do you wish somebody had given you when you first got started in the industry? I would have liked to hear, take a year off and go work for a firm. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Don't don't just go get started. Go work for a big real estate developer or or uh, or, or or something like that. There are definitely times where I crave having had some some defaults that didn't require doing so much stupid stuff just to get to the like a basic operating default that another business would have already had in place. I like that. Yeah. The second one would be I don't remember the first three years of this business. Quite frankly, it was that intense. That I, I took my year four to basically reconnect with my wife, my children, and everything else. So it could have been done in a more balanced way. 
Mm-hmm. And I think a life coach would have helped me with that back at that time. So if I didn't follow the advice of going to work for somebody else, it would have been to get a coach. You've brought up that word balance a couple of times. I'm curious. Um, I think of Gary Keller, some other folks that are kind of anti-balance in the the sense that they feel like it's more about opposing extremes that together create balance. What does that word balance mean to you? It's, it's yin and yang. And I respect yin and yang. But what's the point of having this business if um, your marriage is, is, is crumbling? You know, what's the point of having this business and making the money if your health isn't there? So to me, the balance is a personal and professional. But I, I totally get the extremes that you need to go through on sometimes. And there's balance and there's harmony. And that's, you know, could do a whole nother uh, call on that. And maybe we will. Next question is. How much is too much to pay for a new property management contract? We take your average, average owner, average property. I'm talking about organic acquisition, not buying a portfolio. So when you think about your uh, your marketing expense plus the sales labor expense, how much is too much to pay for a new property management contract? Wow. There's a long pause here. Because I'm a highly compliant and I have a finance degree. So, like, I would want to figure that out, Jordan. I don't have an answer for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I, I wish I knew that. I probably should. But where it wouldn't make sense financially for, for your business, where the investment doesn't get the return. Honest answer from a very smart guy. This is the ego opportunity for you just to blurt something out. Now, I appreciate the, the candidness, and this kind of relates to the benchmarking study that we're doing, which we're really excited about to try and establish some norms there. I think there's there's two things. There's the norm of what is, which is useful, and then there's the optimal number of what should be. And obviously, the cost is a function of what the client is worth. But appreciate the honest answer on that one. The next question is, who do you learn from? Are there any names you would toss out to our listeners of people that over time you've really got a lot of value from? Right now, uh, one of my coaches is a man named Rock Thomas. And I have some accountability going on with him and he's helping me out with a strategy. I also learned from a man named James Spooner who studied with Napoleon Hill, uh, Think and Grow Rich. Those are the two that come to, to, to mind and, of course, the, the people in my mastermind group. Love it. Putting your money where your mouth is. He's got multiple coaches. I only have one coach, so now I've got an inferiority complex here, Rob. But <laughs> I love the answer there. Next question is this. What is the number one recurring thing that you see property management entrepreneurs doing wrong when you interact with them? If I'm interacting with a property management entrepreneur – why are they in the space? Like spend more time for making sure that this business is set up for their lifestyle versus the other way around and, and get out of some of the minutia of all this because that always exists mm-hmm. and don't spend so much on the yin and yang of focusing on what could go wrong uh, because that, that is just part of this business. And I've fallen into that trap where, you know, I'm thinking about what could go wrong and, and I'm meddling over it. So when you get out to these conferences and you're everywhere else, like leave behind the minutia and start thinking about some bigger pictures. Because also property management can lead you into a lot of other different uh, cross sections of the real estate space. Those are things that I'm really beginning to explore now. And I think that we're underpaid for what we do, quite frankly, 
as an industry as a whole for when we're operating very well and doing our jobs well and that there's a lot of of other opportunities for us to think a little bigger. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's part of the thesis, my thesis of why we see outside industry coming into this vertical. It's not because we're underpaid. It's because the outside capital has a perspective on how to increase the value extracted. So whether that means having like the renter's warehouse model of having a low price flat fee concept, but having a plan for collateralizing the overall business asset, bringing on even more capital to then find ancillary business opportunities. You know, that's one thesis, but I think there's a ton of growth potential here in the industry overall, but you've got to have that big picture perspective, which like you said, has to go beyond operations and the banal minutia of just running the day-to-day operation. Love that answer. Final question of the interview. I ask this to, to every person that I talk to. Rob, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? Born. They're born. They can be supported over time, but I would say born up through their early life experiences. They have, they, they, I believe they have it in them or they don't. And it's not for everyone. And, and just like not everybody should be, go to school to be a doctor or a lawyer or any of these other, uh, other things. Not everyone should want to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. There's no value judgment in it one way or the other. But I believe that there's some inner drive that some people have that other people don't have. And it's not necessarily that they come out of the womb with it, but it's pretty early on in childhood where it is. So then, 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 then I could, I can answer both ways. But for me, I know I had it at, at an early age. I've also seen some people that, that have not had it, but then wanted to have it and didn't work out so well for them. Now, I also, I would consider myself an entrepreneur, but also not where an entrepreneur, I like the definition of they're a starter, right? But I, I would not consider myself, let's say, a serial entrepreneur. So I don't do a lot of different things. I, I really, like, rent wells, rent wells it. So, you know, the personal development supports that. So I am not someone who, you know, I was almost 10 years at Swiss Farms, and I'm, I'll be, you know, hopefully a lot more at Rentwell as long as I'm offering value to the company. That's where I shall stay. So I think that you, you know, for there's a distinction between that small business owner growing their business and then also somebody who's an entrepreneur that starts things, but that can start a lot of different things. There's there's probably a spectrum of that. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's flavors. Yeah, you've, you've got your, your moguls out there. There's definitely all flavors and varieties, but that answer puts you in, the, let's say, maybe 10% of guests or less that have had a strong inclination to say that it was born. For me, to take that perspective is really just a commentary on the belief that the type of person that will embrace the pain and the ongoing scalable pain and suffering that comes from running your own business and trying to scale it, that takes a special kind of person to to do that and enjoy it. Because like you're mentioning that comment earlier about TJ and the fact that both you and him like work. You actually enjoy what you do. It's not this, uh, thank God it's Friday sort of thing. My favorite day of the week is, is Monday. I don't expect everybody to be like that, but it certainly is my temperament and 
to hand somebody else a manual, you know, to take an e-myth approach and to hand somebody else a manual and say, hey, you need to just have an almost borderline sadistic enjoyment of hustle and grind. That's a challenging thing to do. I think that's the, the rationale for the folks that take the perspective that it's boring rather than bread. But, hey, there's no right or wrong answer. Everybody has a unique commentary on it. Yep. It is what it is. I really appreciate you coming on the show. If folks want to learn more about RentWell and what you're up to, what's the best place for them to go online? They could uh, they could email me, rob at rentwell.com is my personal email address that I use. They could check out any of our markets if they're interested in, in, in speaking with any of our partners there and for any for anything that they needed. And I'd be happy to, to, to communicate. I love to meet new people. I love to have you know, conversations. And uh, the, the property management space has been very good to me. I, uh, I would welcome the opportunity to meet with some other folks from, from, from the space and see what we can all learn together and grow something great together. Guys, if you got something out of this interview, I would encourage you to reach out to Rob. He's a smart operator doing interesting things. Again, Rob, thanks for taking the time to talk with us, share your perspective. We'll, uh, we'll keep eyes on your continued